Welcome to the Illinois Soy Podcast. Enjoy. Today I'm speaking with Jared Gruel, a 2021 CCA Soy Envoy and Certified Crop Advisor. Jared is the owner and sales agronomist for Gruel Farm Service in Central Illinois. He graduated from the University of Illinois with a bachelor's degree in agribusiness management and has been a CCA since 2015. Jared specializes in challenging current systems to generate more profit for growers while balancing program efficiency versus effectiveness. He also currently grows non-GMO corn and soybeans with his uncle. Welcome to the show, Jared, and thanks for joining me today. Happy to be here, Brandon. Thanks for inviting me. For those listening, this is Jared's first year as a CCA Soy Envoy for ISA, and I was curious, Jared, if you could tell us what your favorite part has been so far. Ooh, that's a that's a tough one. There's been a lot of great parts to it, but honestly, I think the best part has been the the networking with the other envoys and learning what what their methods are for tackling this uh, this soybean yield question. Whether it's a better quality bean, a larger bean, more of them, more you know, what everybody's different strategies were for tackling the yield equation. Awesome, Jared. Thank you for sharing that with us. You know, we do have a very talented group of soy envoys, and we're lucky to have you as a member of that group this year. And we're lucky to have you today on the Ill Soy Advisor podcast, where we will discuss in-season weed management strategies. So let's get started with a question on residual herbicides. Do you feel growers should use a residual herbicide to manage pressure from weeds? So as a non-GMO soybean producer uh, alongside my uncle, residual herbicides are not a question of should I, but a what ones do I use? They are essentially a requirement regardless of what soybean system you're using, unless you're in organic production. And then what are some risks associated with controlling weeds only with a post-emergence application? Brandon, have you heard of this product called Roundup? (laughs) (laughs) The the problem with using only a post-emergence application is you are only multiplying the selection pressure uh, on these individual products that we use. Pursuit, Roundup, or all the ALS products, for a a long time, we used them as standalone solutions for controlling weeds. We, we would spray one product and it was done. It was great. It was inexpensive. It was simple. But as we all know, it doesn't take long for resistance to form. And so using that post-emergence application only, you're really jeopardizing those products that, that we have today, whether it's 2,4-D choline or Dicamba, Liberty, uh, Flexstar, Cobra, your PPOs, whether it's Zidua or Outlook or any of those things, if you're using just one method or one post-emergence application, that selection pressure on that is just so much more amplified than using a full program from pre-emerge through post-emergence. Not to mention that once that weed is up, it's competing with our crop. So when you see that water hemp or that mare's tail or lamb's quarter, you see a weed. You see something that's not a soybean field. I see a sink for profits. I see something that's taking yield and profitability away from our crop, which is our ultimate goal. So our goal should be don't let them come up at all. And I think that we're losing that with simply doing this post-emergence application like many people are doing. 
So then when growers are choosing a residual herbicide, what should they consider? There's a lot of things that growers should consider. And I should preface everything by read the label. The label is law, whether we like it or not. So if something says there's a 10-month plant back restriction, we need to know that before we apply it to a field because that's a lot easier fix than after it's been applied to a field. But that would be the first thing, read the label. But the second thing I would say is know your products, know which chemical families offer residuals, and know the individual characteristics of each one. If I asked you what the difference between Zidua and Outlook is, most growers look at me like a goat staring at a new electric fence. <laughs> they, 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 don't, they don't really know. They know they're both good, but they don't know what the unique characteristics of them are. And that just sets a person up for failure. You're essentially throwing darts blindfold. So know, know your active ingredients, know what they do, what they won't do, and what their, what their residuals are. Should growers who choose to spray herbicides be concerned about carryover into the following crop or cover crop? Absolutely. There's so many things that we don't think of that are questions from carryover from the previous year. And carryover can come in a, actually in a couple of different forms, but there's a lot of growers that are unaware that Flexstar has a 10-month plant back to it. So if you spray Flexstar, technically you shouldn't plant corn in that field according to the label until 10 months later. I had a grower just this morning ask me if he should go out and spray Flexstar in his non-GMO beans. And I asked him, are you intending to plant corn before Memorial Day next year? He said, well, you know me, of course that then the answer is no, it, because that's what the label says. But we even come across this carryover issue in some other forms. And really, this next example isn't so much a carryover, but it's it's residual from the previous year. We had there's been a lot of examples around me locally of group 27 injury to soybeans. Now, was that carryover from uh, from the corn crop the previous year? That was a question that went through my mind. Why is this showing up? What it really more was, I suspect, is people were taking uh, Halex or other corn chemical toads to get bulk liberty due to the supply issues right now, and the product wasn't getting cleaned out. Is that carryover from previous year? No. Is that more contamination? Yes, but it is carryover. So the label answers all these questions. We have to be cognizant of it. You know, Jared, you talked a lot about the active ingredients there for a moment and the importance of reading through the label. Why is it so important to understand the active ingredients of a selected herbicide program? So I mentioned two earlier, Zidua and Outlook, and I'm not trying to pick on one, but this is an easy one to highlight. If you applied Zidua in 2012, you very likely had weeds break through your program. And that was no fault of the product. The problem, the problem with Zidua is, and it's not that much of a problem, it's just quirk. It takes a two-inch activating rain to get Zidua working for you. So if your overlapping windows expire and your product hasn't activated, there is now a window for your weed to get started. Whether it's lamb's quarter, whether it's... Uh, water hemp, whether it's Johnson grass, it doesn't matter. If there's no active residual going, 
you need to be cognizant of that. So I mentioned that Zidua takes a two-inch activating rain. It also has the longest residual window of up to 56 days of the group 15 herbicides. On the flip side, there's its, I call it its little baby brother, Outlook. Outlook only takes like a quarter of an inch rain to activate. So it activates very quickly, but it's residual length depends very much on the amount of rainfall. The more rain you get, the less effective in the, the shorter amount of time it controls controls weeds and keeps them from emerging. So like in 2012, Outlook was a very good op option because on that rare chance when you got rain, it activated and it kept working. Whereas Zidua was sitting there going, I need more rain. I need more rain. I need more rain. This year, when I've been working with growers, I've had a lot of people that the Zidua has been very effective. We got 18 inches of rain in July, which hardly ever happens. So we were able to get the rain to activate the Zidua and keep it going. Whereas those that went with the Outlook, it got activated, but now they're starting to see escapes. That's no fault of the product. It's the fact of the volume of rain that we got allowed for enhanced or expedited microbial breakdown of the product. But that's where understanding the characteristics of these active ingredients and what they do will come in so beneficial because then we're using them as tools, not as just rolling the dice at the craps table for which one's going to work. Then Jared, can you explain to us what it means to layer soybean residuals? Layer is a word that we use quite a bit. I've started to say something more like reinforced soybean residuals. When we're laying residuals, what we're really talking about is two things. One, having more than one active residual at a time. So we don't want just one working on any specific weed species, in particular, anything from the amaranthine species. So that is where knowing the length of the product and how long it's effective for comes into play. Some, some products are famous for having a 10 to 21 day window. And a lot of people like to use those in the spring as a pre-emerge product. When I'm, when I'm told they're using this, some of these as a product or as their pre-emerge control, I ask them, so are you 100% certain that within 21 days of applying this product, you're going to be out there to apply your next, your post-emerge application? That conversation typically does not happen, especially as we're pushing these planning dates earlier and earlier. We have to make sure that we're getting out there before these windows of control expire. But the other component is we cannot rely on just one residual. Prod chemical families that have residuals to them, group three, group four, uh, group 14, and group 15, I'll even throw in group 27, even though there is no label for the balanced trait or for the balanced herbicide on GT27 soybeans. We should be using all of these as part of a residual program. And some of them do have burn down activity, but knowing where they fit into this puzzle is where understanding the characteristics of these active ingredients comes into play. And then as we come to a close on our conversation today, Jared, my last question is, what are some general recommendations to help growers avoid giving up soybean bushels to weeds this season? Never let them get started. Anthropologically, the definition of a weed is any species that is competing with a desired crop, which is why corn is a 
weed some years, volunteer corn and soybeans, and other years it's not when we actually have real crop production because volunteer corn is competing with nutrients and moisture and it's providing a haven or a habitat for overwintering diseases and such. Anything that competes with our crop is by definition a weed and we should never let them get started. Now, is it entirely practical to say we want 100% control? No, we're going to have escapes, but learning from those escapes and controlling those comes into play. So never letting those weeds get started, letting them expire in the soil seed bank is the best form of control that we can really come up with short of canopy, short of canopy of the crop. Well, that's all the time we have today. Jared, thank you for joining us today to share your insights on in-season herbicide treatments and weed management strategies. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, Brandon. Again, that was Jared Gruel, a 2021 CCA Soy Envoy, sharing insights on in-season herbicide treatments and weed management strategies. If you're interested in learning more about this topic and other soybean management resources, visit www.illsoyadvisor.com. That's ilsoyadvisor.com to learn more. This has been an Ill Soy Advisor podcast. Thanks for tuning in.